You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined again by Dan Diamond, national reporter investigating health politics and policy at the Washington Post. Welcome, Dan. It's great to have you back together with us. Steve, I'm glad to be back, but does this mean that the coronavirus continues to be a crisis? I have to keep coming back for updates. You can carry that presumption forward. (laughs) Some may feel differently, but we haven't changed the name. This is episode 131, I believe. Oh, wow. Started in February of 2020. Mm. So it's, it's a metronome in some ways of how severe COVID is. That's right. That's right. So let's start with this predicament and this debacle that we see have witnessed recently in terms of the inability to move funding for the global response, but also the inability to move adequate funding for the domestic response. It's really been quite embarrassing, quite disturbing to see this happen. And from a distance, this looks like a very embarrassing turning point and a a debacle in which almost all parties to this, Democrats and Republicans in Congress, members of the Biden administration, including its White House staff, all bear some responsibility for what's happened. There were timing issues, people waited too long, there were miscalculations, and I think what many people fear is that there's just been a widespread diminution of energy, interest, and commitment across all of these actors. Am I getting that right? And what's your take on this, Dan? Debacle is a good word for it. Maybe I should have quoted you for one of our stories. The idea that this has fallen apart has been so hard to accomplish. Steve, I've been thinking about it from two perspectives. First, just generally, what does it say about our priorities at this point? You can talk to any public health expert who will give you a clear message that COVID anywhere can turn into a threat everywhere, that the variant that emerges in India in several weeks could be helping swamp hospitals in Indianapolis. COVID will keep coming back until it is appropriately managed or minimized. And we're, we're not quite there yet. And yet that lesson doesn't seem to be resonating, the general public and, and many lawmakers. And second, I've been thinking about what this means for our broken Congress. You laid it out well. This has been a months-long saga where multiple actors, not just Republicans, not just Democrats, not just people in the House and Senate, but folks in the White House administration too, bear, bear some responsibility. About three months ago, my colleagues at the Washington Post and I, we were pushing administration officials on this exact question. Do you need more money to fight COVID? And the answer we were getting off the record uh, or on background from sources was yes. And we probably need in the tens of billions, maybe the $80 billion range. But the amount of money that the White House actually came to Congress and, and first briefed them on was much smaller. In February, they came and said, okay, maybe we need $30 billion. Then the amount that was requested was $22 billion. And then it just has continued to to shrink and shrink to the point that this $10 or $10 billion package that looked reasonably solid entering this week, now that 
Congress is going on a recess, that $10 billion package looks awfully unlikely, maybe even dead. So it, it's just been a steady saga of lack of action compounded by different political priorities swamping COVID. In looking at this and trying to understand what are the seismic factors that would bring about such a disaster, which is a sudden, really a sudden reversal of fate as against the mobilization by Congress and the Trump administration and this administration that's brought forward trillions of dollars of response. I mean, it seems like several things have happened. One, we've finished the emergency phase and we've finished the ability to bring forward very large-scale emergency supplementals. We're now in a game where we're saying, yes, there's an emergency, but we're really not in an emergency. And these funds have to come with offsets. And when you start talking in those terms, that means you get winners and losers, and it has a deeply partisan piece. So you're taking something away from everyone, and it leads to a very dysfunctional set of battles that increase the disincentives to do anything. That's one proposition that I'll try out. Of course, the electoral cycle is fully upon us that only augments all of those tensions and brings them forward and changes the incentive structure. And then there's Ukraine, which, of course, has everyone sitting on the edges of their seats and is going to consume vast energy and vast resources. Does any of that make sense, or am I missing some other factors driving this sudden reversal? Well, I, I find it interesting that you you are asking questions where I feel like your answers are pretty good. The idea of the offsets and Republicans pushing specifically that they need to know that this bill is going to be paid for, that did contribute to the collapse of the $15 billion package that was going to run as part of the omnibus about a month ago. And since then, again, it almost seems like Congress is negotiating against itself, the package shrinking and no action forthcoming. The clawing back of funds that have been promised or, or pledged elsewhere, that is difficult. At the same time, I do see the argument by some Republicans that trillions of dollars have been spent. We know some amount of that has been used fraudulently. My colleagues at The Post have written stories about some of that fraud. So accountability does matter. The issue of whether it should matter to the point of not being able to fund an urgent response that public health experts unilaterally agree we need, and we're not talking about $300 billion or a trillion dollars, we're talking at least urgently, $5 billion for global, $10 billion domestically. Th those are sums that historically, in the past few years, Congress was able to get to with alacrity. The fact that they cannot and they're in stasis suggests how COVID has really moved down the political priority list. And some of that, I think you're right, is, is about a midterm election year where Republicans have disproportionately wanted to move on and are now in a position where, as the minority party, want to criticize the Biden response criticize a perception that maybe federal officials aren't doing enough to move the country back to normal, whatever that might be. And then Democrats, too, have their own priorities that they want to show they're attentive to, which are increasingly not COVID if you go by the polling, and are things like inflation and crime. Ukraine may be, as much as it's overshadowing everything else, that may be the vehicle 
to get more COVID funding in coming weeks. If this $10 billion package falls apart, perhaps there will be another Ukraine supplement that's necessary and more COVID money can be attached to that next month. And we could see in the meantime, the arrival of a BA2 wave, Omicron wave as well. I think it is arriving. Don't don't you think so? I mean, when you start seeing the reports of all the people falling ill so quickly. Yes. No, I mean, it's in front of us and it's going to gallop and that's going to change, perhaps change perceptions in some in some way. I think if it had arrived earlier, it might have changed some of the dynamic of all of this. Back to your point about the Republican arguments that there's a lot of unused prior emergency funds that can be repurposed for our current requirements, antivirals, tests, and like, boosters, but also that there needs to be greater rigor in the transparency and accountability funds in order to feel confident that they're being used appropriately. What I don't quite understand is why couldn't there be a, an agreement to really begin in earnest an exercise of, of greater auditing and transparency while moving ahead on, these, on this fairly modest front? Why wasn't that possible, do you think? Well, some is who you ask, Steve. I, I think Democrats, the White House has said they have been transparent as they can be about where spending has gone so far, and that it's Republicans who are just asking too much. And the, the accountability that they're seeking, it's actually underway and shouldn't be a reason to hold up any more funding. But I, I do get where the skepticism comes from. The Justice Department has said it's found billions of dollars and fraud that they're, they're currently pursuing. I'm an accountability reporter. I've written stories in the past about much smaller amounts of money being used for right. federal officials to take charter jets and, and hire PR consultants. So the idea that we need to get some clarity on millions or billions of dollars that have gone out in coronavirus packages, I, I understand that. And I think it's also worth underlining, this isn't just Republicans. I remember Senator Patty Murray, the Democrat who chairs the Senate health panel, pushing HHS officials a few months ago on why we didn't have more tests ready for Omicron, right. given the billions of dollars that have been set aside specifically for testing. And the HHS officials in public testimony were having real trouble answering those questions. So getting to the bottom of past spending to make sure that future spending goes where it needs to, that, that does feel like a worthy endeavor. But I'm with you in that you can begin that accountability effort. You can ensure that there's more accountability on who's receiving money in the future. But that's a little bit different to me than $5 billion that might go directly to relatively reliable partners or, or firms that have been working with the government over the past two years and shown a track record of, say, giving us vaccines. There's many lessons to this bad experience. One of them is the White House has to begin much earlier and, and make clear and consistently that this is a top priority. Another is there needs to be a lot more flexibility and innovation on this question of accountability and transparency because ultimately we know those $6 trillion, there's going to be corruption in that. And that's inevitable. You can't have programs of that scale and speed and not have things go missing. And yet our COVID response can't, can't be held hostage to that legitimate concern. Because as you point out, those monies are going into very worthy and reliable partners. 
and they're urgently needed. And it seems that without those things and without reliable Republican leadership, which seemed to go missing at key points here, which is another lesson, which is certain individuals in the House and Senate who were regarded as, as stalwarts are not in this period. And that's a reflection of a kind of change in party and change in the electoral context. Who are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking Senator Graham in particular just did not did not pull his weight in the same way that you would have anticipated in this case. And that was a, a big surprise, I think. I'm not trying to hang. As I said, I think there's blame to pass around here in many places, but I think that the quiet consensus uh, compacts that have been forged in time to move these agendas forward have required him, have required Speaker Pelosi to have uh, effective control over her ranks in the House, which also uh, faltered, stumbled in this period. So there's some hard lessons there on the sort of leadership and management from in the White House, in the House, in the, in the Senate, which gets me to, it just seems like we're setting ourselves up to be seen again as very flat-footed as this next wave pours in and as the demands are there and, and we're seen as not having what we need in hand. What do you think of that? Well, I think in terms of behaviors, the answer is yes, we're flat-footed. I mean, just look at the number of people in Washington who have had maskless meetings or were gathered together in small rooms over the past few weeks. I don't know about you, Steve, but I know a number of folks who have come down with COVID, some for the first time in the pandemic this week, because they went to either the gridiron dinner or attended something attached to an administration event. And that might have been preventable if, if folks had been more closely following the pending BA2 wave and how transmissible it is, or been following the data on the efficacy of vaccines and, and boosters. So folks who say, well, I've, I'm fully vaccinated, but it's been a year or it's been six months since they got their booster shot. So the data and communicating of actual risk, I think, continues to be lost. But there's also a very different interpretation in, in different groups about where we are. I was just looking before we got on this call at a Kaiser Family Foundation poll about how Americans were behaving during the pandemic. And more than half of Republicans said that they have returned to normal or didn't cut back their activities at all during the pandemic versus about a quarter of Democrats who said the same. So where you are in America and, and who you identify with may well determine how ready you are for the next wave, what protections you're taking, what masking you're, you're doing. Of course, there is a silver lining here too, which is if lots of people are getting COVID, but they're getting mild or no symptoms because they were previously vaccinated and boosted, that is a victory. And, and if we have to figure out how to live with COVID in some capacity, I think that's a reality we have to hope we're going to get to. That COVID, if it's going to circulate, is is so defanged that we don't have to panic. It, it isn't a national news story when House Speaker Pelosi says that she's infected. Along these lines, I had a conversation this week, now that we're trading sort of the shock stories of the week. I had a conversation this week with a very senior person from London who's a global health scientist and expert. And he said, you know, Steve, you're about three weeks behind us, maybe, maybe a little longer, we don't know exactly, but 
yesterday in London, so that would have been like Monday or Tuesday of this week, one in 12 Britons were infected with Omicron BA2 in a single day, four to five million. And that's, you know, why do you think you're going to be any different? Um, and as you point out, you know, we're all seeing the, the profusion of cases um, in, uh, in, our, in our own immediate surroundings. I mean, a young family on my block, everybody got infected uh, this week, uh, all the children and the adults. Um, so I don't know if we're going to be, if, if, we're, if, if we're going to experience a shock or whether this is the test where we have a wave come through and it doesn't deliver a sufficient number of people into the hospital and into extreme illness, and we do experience it as something that is tolerable. A major challenge, Steve, and, and you can tell me if it's different for you, it feels to me that anecdotally, DC is experiencing a wave, but you would not know that from the data. The data releases from DC have been so cut back. Yeah. And then there's the additional layer of people who are testing positive At in homes, their homes, but not, not reporting. reporting. Yeah. So, so when I'm thinking about, are we going to be flat footed? I think we have lost some visibility into our surroundings. We, we can't make the same plans that maybe we would have been able to if our data was as improved as it could have been two years into the pandemic. The idea that the White House messaging has also sometimes been out of step there could have been more alarm months ago about the need for funding. There wasn't. There was some decision made not to amplify that. There similarly could have been more warning, I think, of the BA2 wave coming. And while the White House has spoken on this, it's generally been about our recovery, which is a story that Democrats very much want to tell heading into a contested 2022 election. Right. The discomfort and disincentives of talking about this have risen at the political leadership level. Absolutely. Across partisan lines. And so it makes us all very sluggish and, and, and indefinite. Um, and we've relaxed all the mechanisms and measures that we've put in place. When this infection took place in my neighborhood and this young family, the District of Columbia school system didn't follow up on the infection with any contact tracing or notification to parents for 10 days. You know, what does that tell you about the real, you know, it's a kind of relaxation of mechanisms and, and the sense of um, alarm or vigilance. People have become, you know, indifferent and complacent and not very alert in this period. We're just exhausted. I mean, two years in, it's, yes. it's hard to blame yeah. folks. But. No, the, the longevity, I think, is a deep factor that the exhaustion, frustration, anger that this has gone on for so long that affects people. And I think we all feel that. And I think that's partly why this has become transpartisan in a way, right? The behavioral and attitudinal. You, you pointed to the changes that the continued gap that Kaiser Family Foundation and Pew is showing in among Americans. But above that is a very common set of attitudes that cut across party lines that I attribute to the longevity the extraordinary longevity of this. You were writing recently, I want to get in a moment, get to Ashish Shah as the new coordinator, but I want to touch on two topics that you wrote on recently that I found quite interesting. You focused on indoor ventilation 
which is a really essential, important step. I mean, uh, our leadership here at CSIS, Dr. Hamry, early in this pandemic moved to put HEPA ventilation systems throughout this building, which was just a great step. And it was terribly important getting people back in. You can hardly hear yourself talk when you're in rooms with that stuff going on, but you know you're safer. You just need hearing aids. But I think in general, we've been somewhat slow to recognize how important that is. And you've written about that. What is it that explains this? I mean, I know Zeke Emanuel and his folks have been putting a focus on it as part of the new normal agenda. And I think that's very refreshing and valid. And I think it's we're beginning to see more emphasis. But why did that lag, do you think? I've been wondering about that too. And having talked to experts for those stories, I think I've settled on three different theories. First would be that there was so much emphasis on interventions early, like wearing a mask or social distancing. And it's hard to then say on top of that, oh, you need to also overhaul your air filtration system, or you need to buy a HEPA device for your, for your home. Those sorts of structural changes are harder, especially in a world where you're already telling people to do these, these different behaviors. So I think that's one, one theory of the case. I think a second issue is that Americans have ended up hearing so many different messages over the course of the past two years, we are sometimes still focused on the wrong ones. I spoke to Joe Allen, the Harvard expert who specializes in healthy buildings. He argued to me that this early focus on hygiene theater, where you'd walk into a grocery store and there would be hand wipes and, and a focus on this is where you stand to be safest, that those measures, which we increasingly understand do very little to nothing, many Americans locked onto them. And, and it's hard to now convince them of these other measures. And then I think the third and, and maybe the most important, this is something that David Michaels, the former head of, of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health administration uh, during the Obama administration, he made the case to me that public health agencies were too focused for too long on the classic infectious disease model of droplets spreading COVID rather than having it right, aerosolized. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because if you if you pivot to the world where, OK, it does hang in the air, that has major implications for everything it has implications for the hospitals that are taking in patients. And, and Dr. Michaels made the point, you've got, you know, a drape between people's beds and that doesn't really work in a world where COVID's airborne it has implications for people returning to work. The CDC, the World Health Organization, were petitioned by doctors and, and scientists who wanted a realization, a recognition of, of the aerosol nature of, of COVID. And it just took a long time to get there. And because of that, because of that institutional resistance that, that Dr. Michaels and others pointed out to me, I think that's made it also hard to acknowledge what, what has become increasingly evident. I think those are all very credible, compelling explanations. I would add to that, it depends on what institution you're in. In other words, if you're Scott Kirby at United Airlines, you're going to get it and you're going to work fast on that. If you're in a medical facility, it seems like it's a bridge too far. I think, in terms of those institutions not having the, the deep pockets and the capacity to think big and act big, you're stressed, you're, you're financially strapped. It just becomes something perhaps later and it, when, when budgets are better and you're not. And, and maybe schools are similar. I mean, you'd think that schools would have jumped right on this. Some did. 
Many did not. And it may be a matter of a bridge too far, too expensive, overload with the other immediate things going on, leadership quality. I mean, there, Scott Kirby is a, is, a, is a great leader and saw this early on and grabbed onto it. Uh, just like, you know, I was saying earlier about the leadership here. So, you know, some people see around corners and some don't. Some have incentives to do that. Um, did you want to add any thoughts to that? Oh, I, I just had one other, um, which is I'm no expert in air quality, but having talked to folks who are, the, the history of building construction in the United States was a fascinating side conversation in this. And Dr. Allen at Harvard made the point that the 70s energy crisis in some ways contributed to what he said, sick building syndrome, where buildings that may have been built bigger historically were built smaller and tighter because it cost less to keep them warm in the winter, for instance. But as a result, you have these buildings from the 70s, the 80s that are being used today that are less healthy in terms of airflow. These are things that experts have wanted to change for a long time. I think their hope is COVID is finally providing the money, the impetus to fix this, not just for COVID, but for all the other infectious diseases that hang in the air and get people sick at school, work, and so on. Uh, you did a piece on the push in Congress and elsewhere to change to uh, daylight savings, <laughs> move to a permanent change. I didn't know the history of that. It was a fascinating history. The issue came and went, right? I mean, it, it, <laughs> say a bit about that because I found that I found that really fascinating and amusing. I don't mean to laugh, but I found it amusing too. I, I had asked for that story, Steve, because I've been covering such bleak news for two years, whether COVID, and I slid over and wrote about some of the horrible things in Ukraine. So I asked my editor, I, I said something to the effect of, I just want one day of sunlight, give me this daylight saving time story, which initially was not the Senate bill. There had been a House hearing a week or so before the Senate passed its bill, where the House heard arguments for, should we stop changing the clocks? twice a year. There was testimony that the clock change in the spring and in the fall has negative health consequences. There are groggy drivers. There's an increased risk of heart attack. So let's get rid of the clock change. But the question was, what do we do? Do we move to permanently daylight saving time? So we slide forward. Do we stay on permanent standard time? So we never move up. Um, it, it was really interesting. And then not long after the Senate passed a bill that would permanently shift the nation onto daylight saving time. Under the legislation, we would spring forward one final time next year and then never fall back. That passage was somewhat of a fluke. It was done through unanimous consent. A lot of senators didn't know that it was going to happen. The House has since said, in kind of a reversal of the historical relationship, the House is now acting as the cooling saucer. And I think, Steve, this issue isn't dead. There's clearly desire to get rid of changing the clocks if we can. It's more like it's hibernating. And I, I spoke to a couple of professors, Thomas Gray, Jeffrey Jenkins, who have done fascinating research around the politics of daylight saving time. They found, unsurprisingly, we are most interested in changing the rules when the clock itself changes. So that urgency helped the bill pass the Senate by unanimous consent a month ago. But as spring forward and all the grogginess we felt recedes into distant memory, the urgency to change national policy is also steadily disappearing. Let's talk about Ashish Jha. He's just started in his new role, replacing Jeff Zients. 
as the White House coordinator for the COVID-19, White House COVID-19 group. We all know Ashish, I mean, from his time at Harvard and, and his new position as, I guess he's taking a leave of absence from his position as dean, Brown University School of Public Health. This comes at a moment when people have been pondering, why have communications been so fraught in this period of the, why is the administration's success at winning trust and confidence been so fraught and the communications across political lines been so fraught? And we know that the effort domestically and internationally has been, the, has been beset by lots of pretty deep interagency tensions and conflicts as well. So it's not an easy job. It's not an easy job by any means. And we're now in this new phase, this murky transition. Are we still in an emergency or we just go out of it and we come back in? So it's a complicated and murky period to be trying to talk to an American public that is very polarized, that's exhausted, that wants out of this. What's your estimation of how appropriate, what's the fit look like from your, where you sit? terms of all the many skills and talents that Ashish has, but not everybody has all the skills and talent and, and, and seasoned experience for every demand. And this is a job that has many different demands. If the job was just going on podcasts, Dr. Ja would be the slam dunk choice. He has appeared on podcasts that I had at Politico. I know he's been with you, Steve. He's an incredible communicator. I think anyone you talk to acknowledges that first and foremost. He started at the White House on Wednesday, April 6, but was overlapping with the outgoing COVID coordinator, Jeff Zients, for a few days. The goal was to just have him see how the team was running and not immediately plug and play. And part of that is, as, as critics have pointed out, as we wrote before and, and will likely be writing on again, Dr. Ja has never had a full-time government job. He did advise the Veteran Affairs secretary during the Obama administration. He has informally advised this COVID team. So he is familiar with the workings, but it's very different to be on the outside looking in than to be the person leading the way. And some of the criticism of this administration on its messaging, its communication, Dr. Jaz issued some of that. He's gone on TV. He's written tweets criticizing the Biden administration. So I think it will be very interesting to watch if he can measure up to the critiques that he issued as an outside expert. The White House has moved to try and put folks who are, are government veterans around him. He will be inheriting some vestiges of the Jeff Zions team. Some of those folks are going to be leaving around the same time as, as Zions or, or uh, maybe in the coming weeks. So it's not going to be a total inheritance. There, there will be some turnover. But I know who the White House has talked to for a few of these jobs. These are people who have experience working at high levels in government. Dr. Jha himself has said to people he knows this is his weakness. His allies in the government have said as much. They, they know that this is where he needs to be bolstered. What does it mean to actually lead the interagency? Government is very difficult and slow. It is about seeing the threat coming around the corner. I know that Dr. Ja has considerable management experience, not just at Brown, but he did lead a Harvard team on global health. Some of that will be applicable for sure. But it's very different, I think, to go to Congress and argue for billions of dollars in aid 
versus, say, going to the Harvard president and arguing for an additional professor. There are some dynamics that are similar, but the stakes and the players are quite different. If you go to Harvard's president and ask for a little money to put on an event or bring on a professor, there's reasonable confidence that that decision may stay between the two of you. If you're negotiating with Congress, expect those stories to leak to the media, to be in the Post and Politico and Axios, to have the principles go on national TV and and fire their shots on what they want to see happen. It's just an incredibly different environment that he has not been tested in. So I do think that's a legitimate area to ask questions about. And the second piece is around his own communication skills, Steve. He is so talented at messaging. I've talked to folks who say, what happens if Ashish Jha is messaging that we are going to be in a great place through the pandemic when the data is suggesting the opposite? Will his talents be put to an end of reassuring Americans when maybe they need a little more urgency and a little less pats on the head? We need a reset. We need a new, uh, we need a fresh voice here um, and somebody that has new energy and a sense of humility and civility and somebody who's not yet been painted into a corner by vicious partisan desires like what's happened with Tony Fauci. And I think that optimism that he carries as well, the humility, the civility, the optimism, the nonpartisanship, those are all qualities that we need in this reset, in this refresh. We also are at a moment when we have a new strategy from a month ago. We've got a budget and we've got systems in place on many of the key functions that weren't functioning a year ago or a year and a half ago. That So he's coming in with the other problems. There's the politics have run the other direction. It's going to be more difficult. There's, you know, deep skepticism and weariness and everything else. But he's coming in with, with a set of things in place that are quite favorable and with things that Jeff Science didn't frankly have in place. He had to build these. I mean, he's inheriting Jeff and Jeff's team's achievements in a way. And so we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of the, the remarkable pieces that have been created that he can build on in that way. And so that's, I think, on the positive side. On the, on the other side of things, I think that if we're, if we have a White House that's saying we're going to get out of the emergency and move into some kind of new more normality and, and the like, and here's our plan, and I think their plan's pretty good, actually, if they can get it funded, that implies that the White House wants to have less of a heavy hand it seems to me, in driving things. And they're looking, you look at their plan and their budget, it's putting enormous authority over to HHS to drive things. And HHS has been oftentimes untested or oftentimes not the confidence to say, you got it, go with it. So he's coming into a period where there's a pretty significant shift of thinking and authority and power, trying to push things out from under the day-to-day leadership and direction of the White House, which would be consistent with the view that we're out of the emergency and we're moving something else. There was a story that my colleagues and I did not so long ago about the frustrations with Secretary Becerra at HHS, which had reached the point that folks were openly musing about replacing him. Not that it was imminent, but that, man, 
They wished there was someone else in that seat. And some of that was a function of how much HHS had been cut out from the beginning of the COVID response and how hard it was for that team and Secretary Becerra to find their way in. I think in the past number of weeks, we have seen the shifting over to HHS and, and there will be more leadership and as a result, more scrutiny on Becerra and his team on, on what they can deliver. And I take your point too, Steve, that each COVID coordinator is inheriting a better situation than the person who came before. Deborah Burks, the first COVID coordinator, came into a Trump White House where her opinion was often ignored, uh, where there was often chaos. She could make recommendations that President Trump would publicly rebuke, essentially, within minutes. Jeff Zion stepped in at a time when COVID cases were, at that point, at their all-time high. But there was also agreement that this was the nation's priority. There wasn't an issue about going to Congress and winning funding. Ashish Jha comes in with more therapies, more supplies, more understanding of the fight that we are in. But at the same time, it, it's a different level of urgency around how much the COVID response team needs to do and what they will be driving. I, I, I'm curious because it's hard for me to tell from your comments. Do you think Dr. Jha was the right choice? Would you pick someone else for that job? I think he's a good choice, and I admire him, and I've told him that we will support him and, and that he's a good person for this post with all of these provisos because no person. I mean, the only, if, if I were president, which I happen not to be, what would I have turned to? I think I would have turned to somebody who was a four-star combatant commander because I think we got it right earlier when we had three stars. You mean in terms of logistics? In terms of someone with a great gravitas in trying to convey to the American people, there's a reason why someone of that security gravitas is coming into this. That, I think that uh, as an alternative, I think Ashish is a terrific person for this, and I don't mean to imply differently. In terms of what's the concept of what's needed, I think it's somebody who brings forward a, a very strong security argument, an ability to deal with the corporate sector in a dramatic and more authoritative way, and knows operations, knows how to do operations, and knows how to work an interagency process very hard. I would just say, just to close on this, the, there's a couple other things we haven't mentioned much. Within this administration, the team is filling in. I mean, we have Atul Gawande now, a second Pulitzer Prize winning personality at USAID, along with Samantha Power. We have John Nkengazong joining soon when he gets confirmed, hopefully this month, the Senate to become head of the Office of Global AIDS Coordinator. He's a remarkable leader. He's done a remarkable job at Africa CDC. We have Tom Inglesby running testing at the White House. You know, I can go on in n naming people that are arriving or have arrived. And so Ashish is coming in with not just the pieces, the policy, the strategy, the infrastructure, the industrial policy in place that's needed, but also some pretty remarkable people that are there in place. The other thing I, that's important is we have paid a price, a very serious price, in this administration with a unresolved tension between the domestic and international. The international has taken a backseat to the domestic and it's 
and it's been forgotten and getting forgotten this last week or two weeks or three weeks in the debates was another expression of that. And I would hope Ajish is someone who brings a very balanced perspective on both. And I, I would hope is less prone to that sort of forcing the international to be second fiddle to the domestic when they're obviously two sides of the same coin and, and that argument gets lost. The other thing I'd say is that the corporate partnerships in this next phase, how they get shaped and defined are going to be absolutely essential. And I would be hopeful. I mean, university leadership in research, big muscular research institutions in the biomedical field know a lot about that. And I think that's another dimension that we haven't talked about, but which is going to be very important. You mentioned USAID and, and Atul Gawande and Samantha Power. I, I may be speaking just a bit out of school, but I know that when, when Gawande was coming on board there, I pitched my editors on the idea of writing a story about has an agency ever had so many best-selling authors in, in a small leadership team. I could not get that story through. But I'm hope, sorry, hope because that's a great story. I mean, <laughs> since when did you have two Pulitzer Prize winning authors in an, in an agency like USAID? I, I couldn't think of a precedent. So maybe I need you uh, to greenlight. Well, you a, give me your editor's this, email but... and I'll send a <laughs> reprimand. <laughs> It, it was uh, it, it was tabled as something interesting, but needed a better uh, better gravitas, I suppose. And then you mentioned Steve the national security piece of this with the gravitas of of, of having a four star. I was listening to Senator Chris Coons the other day, who's been trying to make the case for the global, and he made the argument that the Pentagon should step up and argue more vociferously about why vaccines around the world are a national security issue because COVID is a security threat. I thought that was interesting. I, I had not thought about it from that angle that that our military branch could be bringing more to bear given how loud their voice rings on Capitol Hill. The team around Ja, the team around the Biden administration is pretty robust. I mean, it's a lot of experts who made their names in the first year of the pandemic offering expertise from the outside. And now it's a question of, can they make that real? I am really curious if Ashish Jha, who had so much pithy advice on television, can he turn that into policy? Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a very fair point. We'll be publishing very soon a lengthy paper on DOD and its, its many assets that should be and can be applied more effectively in advancing our international engagement on health security. So I'm totally with you on, and Senator Coons on that on that score. And there's a desire and will, frankly, in some key places to do far more within the DOD structure. Yeah. I mean, they're working on that pan-coronavirus vaccine at, at Walter Reed, which is just fascinating too. Exactly. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think we've probably uh, set a new record too, <laughs> which is great. And uh, Dan, thank you so much for spending the time with us and for being so open to talking about so many different things over the course of the afternoon. This is an important issue. I'm, I'm so glad to be able to share some insights from the Post reporting. And thanks for having me back, Steve. Thanks, Dan. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet, an AIDS existential moment on our homepage 
at csis.org slash podcasts.